Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with New York Times bestseller and National Book Award finalist Paolo Bacigalupe, author of The Water Knife. In a world where water is scarce, Angel Velasquez is an assassin known as Water Knife, in which he sabotages the water supply of his employer's competitors. After his past cross with climate refugee Maria Valarosa, and award-winning journalist Lucy Monroe, his loyalty is tested. The Los Angeles Times wrote, the book's nervous energy recalls William Gibson at his cyberpunk best, but this is no pastiche. Bacigalupe weaves an engrossing tale all his own, crackling with edgy style. Paolo is an internationally best-selling author of speculative fiction. He's won numerous awards. His work often focuses on questions of sustainability and the environment, most notably the impacts of climate change. In The Water Knife, he imagines a future without water that may not be that far off. Paolo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so congratulations on the book. Thanks, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, I was, it's, a, it's always a relief to actually see the thing that was in your mind actually finally make it onto the page and then make it out into the world. So Yeah, that is a process. We could talk about that all day. But uh, <clears throat> Lee Child, who's a name that's also fairly recognizable, he says about your book, these days are coming, and as always, fiction explains them better than fact. This is a spectacular thriller 
wonderfully imagined and written and racing through it will make you think and make you thirsty. Now, the reason I read that partly also because of the fine comments there, but do you sometimes think about Lee Child's comment when you're writing these kind of books? That is that you might be able to explain things better through fiction than fact. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, that's actually sort of one of my core motivations. One of the things that I've noticed is that when you're, especially when you're talking about um, complex questions about the world, um, oftentimes we can see small pieces of the puzzle, but we don't necessarily put the entire puzzle together and we don't actually get that into some kind of a mosaic of, of meaning. Um, so for example, with the water knife, um, one of the things that I started out with was, you know, sort of like small details that mattered to me, which were things like the fact that Lake Mead, which, uh, supplies water for Las Vegas and, uh, Phoenix, um, uh, is uh, at historically low levels and has been dropping over the last decade, steadily dropping over the last decade. And so when you see something like that happening, each individual news story that says that Lake Mead is getting lower and lower uh, doesn't necessarily trigger a cascade of meaning for, for a person. Um, and so for me with science fiction, what I can do is I can sort of look at that and then ask this question, if this goes on, what does the world look like? If this becomes the most dominant trend, what does the world look like? If we keep having low snowpack, if we keep having increased population in the Southwest, you know, if we know that like uh, climate data is saying that it is going to get hotter and drier, put all those things together, what do we get? And then it, it's a bit like... Um, I don't know. It's like putting on funhouse glasses or something like that. You see the world in a distorted way then. Um, but that distortion of just taking that trend and just pushing it as far out as possible um, sort of gives you a, a better understanding of like the implications of those small details and those small facts that are showing up day to day. Are you writing about your backyard? Is this something that uh, you, you've seen uh, in your lifetime uh, because you're familiar with the area? Uh, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I am actually working with uh, material that uh, I've been thinking about for a long time. I used to be the online editor at a news magazine called High Country News, which covers the Western United States. Um, it covers a lot of natural resource and land use issues. Um, and I remember very distinctly, um, you know, it must have been almost 20 years ago, uh, Matt Jenkins, a, uh, a uh, reporter for us, um, uh, reported on the uh, the increasing conflicts uh, over Colorado River water, and um, as I you know sort of dug into that more and more, and then there was another journalist named Michelle Myhouse who started digging into a bunch of climate change questions in the Southwest, and as that material sort of started to come in, you started to get this sort of like troubling sort of general picture. Um, and then what ends up happening is you end up sort of sitting with that for a long time. And I've watched, you know, news stories come through and more news stories. And then you sort of see this accumulation of information. And, and at some point then, you know, part, and partly, I mean, so where I live, I live in the Western, I live in Western Colorado, which is also a fairly uh, arid region. Um, and it's dependent entirely on irrigation water for our um, and irrigation systems for our, uh, for our farming and, and lifestyle here in this valley. Um, so you can see very clearly there's these connections between how much snow fell, how full your reservoir is, how long your irrigation water will last through the summer. And if you have a low snowpack year, you know that by August there's going to be a call on the river and you're not going to be able to get any more water. 
um, for your farmland. So there are things like that too, that like just, just from a, a, a perspective of growing up in a region that's so focused on water, you know, that's always in your background kind of understanding. And then you take all of this other information from working at High Country News and it started to kind of come together. Um, I didn't, I didn't start working on Water Knife until years after I'd quit High Country News. And in some ways, I actually didn't really want to write about drought or climate change. Um, but there was a point where I suddenly felt like it was important and necessary. And I felt like nobody else was really taking on that challenge. And so I, I kind of went into it then. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating read, and uh, it is a thriller, and we're going to talk about that today. I, I actually uh, went to Las Vegas once with my dad and my son, and we went to the Hoover Dam, and we're looking over the side, and I don't know what body of water that is on the other side, but it was very low. That's and Lake Mead. Is that Lake Mead? Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I could see the white uh, on the sides of the- Right, the bathtub there. ring. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was amazing to me. I thought, uh-oh, this is uh, it's getting low. Um, well, so, so uh, Paolo- I had the pleasure in January of moderating a panel of experts for the North Carolina Humanities Council because your book was selected for the statewide read. And uh, we had three interesting uh, guests on there. Klaus Albertine, he was the chair of the North Carolina Drought Management Advisory Council, uh, responsible for supporting statewide water supply planning. We had John Kessel, who I think you know is award-winning science fiction and fantasy writer and editor and professor of English at NC State University and Jackie Castle. She was the 2020 Indie Author of the Year uh, for her debut novel, The Seclusion, uh, winner in science fiction. And so the themes we focused on, and I wanted to get your take on this, we, we, we kind of focused around three things. One was water rights and drought. The other one was dystopian literature. And the third was journalism's role uh, in dealing with these kind of serious issues. I want to start first with water rights and drought, because you said you didn't want to write too much about this. It's almost like you don't want to write about something because it's hard to think about, I would assume. And and this is a serious issue. Um, how serious is it? Uh, because, you know, it's different out West than it is back here in North Carolina. We have something called riparian rights. I learned that in law school. Um, you've got something out there called senior water rights. And that sort of weaves its way into the plot of this book. But um, how serious is this issue? Um, I, I mean, it's incredibly serious. It's, it's, it's water is the defining factor of development in the West. Um, and so uh, because of its massive scarcity uh, and uh, the Western United States largely was undeveloped. And you have these stories of things like Lewis and Clark. There's a long period where they cross over a great portion of the Western United States. And it's not until they get to um, the West Coast, actually, that they start, and the I think it's the Columbia River, um, that they start seeing uh, Native Americans who actually have fat on them <laughs> um, because they actually have access to enough food sources to actually become uh, well-fed. Um and you see that sort of like there's just this intense scarcity of of resources within this zone. And what happened was that then we put a whole lot of our engineering know-how to work and we built all of these dams and we created all of these uh, systems of diversion and all of these irrigation projects. And uh, we sort of made the desert bloom. Um, uh, the problem was that we built that entire set of systems and and sort of allocated the water that we assumed would be available from those systems during a period, historically high water levels, um, high snowfall totals, high, high rainfall totals. Um, and so we were already kind of caught in a pinch where because of that, because we did our allocations during this period of a historically high amount of water, 
um, we were already assuming there was more water in the system than there was. And then you take into that and then you add climate change and you start seeing these really, really interesting sort of synergistic patterns where not only do you have less snowfall, but you've also got drier uh, sort of summers and stuff like that. And so you've got more dust blowing around. So that falls on the snow. And so the snow melts faster. And ultimately what you have is you have a period where your snow falls, but it, it, um, it melts too quickly. And so your reservoirs sort of overflow. So you don't have enough catchment at the moment when you need it in order to distribute it. So not only do you have too little water, you also don't have adequate catchment. And then you have it uh, essentially snowfall in the, in the Rocky Mountains is the catchment system uh, for water across the Western United States. And um, when you have all these sort of synergistic sort of things coming together, um, and then you add on top of it the fact that the entire Western United States has experienced explosive growth. Um, uh, places like Phoenix and Las Vegas are so much bigger than they were in the past. Um, you're starting to see a lot, and you know California as well. You're seeing all of these different states sort of competing for a resource. Their demands have increased as the as the resource has has become more depleted. So it's it's it is the critical problem that the Western United States has to solve. Um, you know, in 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 your area, climate change is really going to be much more defined by things like sea level rise and how that threatens your coastal cities and things like saltwater intrusion as sea level sort of pushes into farmland and stuff like that. Um, mm. You know, it's always different for different regions and how those what impacts are like the key aspects. Um, one of the reasons why I decided to write about climate change in the Southwest was because I did understand uh, some of the other key components about how it, how how we were already environmentally vulnerable here, and so it was an easier attack than if I would have set it down in Miami for and talked about sea level rise or something like that. Well, one of the things is as a transition to this concept of dystopian literature here, um, you, you know, as you work towards scarcity. Um, you know, things break, you know, systems break down, you know, government systems break down, uh, legal systems break down and people start reaching for guns and anarchy and that kind of thing. So uh, I mentioned these terms, riparian rights and senior water rights. Um, I'd like you to talk just briefly about that. Did, did you come across that? Uh, obviously, in your research, you did, you, you found out about that. But uh, just a little bit of distinction in North Carolina, you know, the water flows through the rivers, you know, you can take some of it out, but only a reasonable amount. But out there, uh, you know, people can own certain rights that are senior to other people, right? Right. That's correct. Yeah. Um, it's sort of first come, first serve, sort of. If you filed on certain water water amounts, uh, so if you've got a river, for example, you can, you know, you can have claim on a certain amount of that river's water, you know, um, you know, so many um, so many portions of the river, so many shares of the river. And uh um, as long as you're using those, they, they are fundamentally yours. Um, and in some cases, people have absolute rights to absolute amounts of water um, as opposed to just simply shares of the water. Um, but, yeah, what you have is a sort of first come, you know, sort of first arrival. You file on the water, then later later people come and they file on the water. And what you have then, though, is this the process of seniority and the way that it gets defined is that, like, as scarcity occurs on the river – um, the people who came latest lose their right 
in order to serve the people who came earlier. Mm -hmm. And so that absolute right to your full share of water for a senior rice holder means that other people are, it's a very zero sum thing. It's not everybody sort of gets together and shares. It's, you know, zero sum, the senior rice holder gets everything. It's a winner take all sort of system. Sounds like a good thing to be fighting over, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's that, that's the joke, <laughs> right? Uh, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting over. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I actually grew up, I grew up on a farm. And so uh, you, you could see this happen. Like the, the water rights that we had on our farm were, far, um, they were only created in the 1950s. And so um, we are uh, a significant junior rice holder. And so what you would see is that during a drought, um, our water would get cut off, it can get off cut off as early as mid July. And then it's just like, you're done, you're not you're not doing a lot of farming after that. Um, and meanwhile, there's still water on the river, you can watch the water flow on by. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not like the water went away. It's just not yours to touch anymore. Um, and, you know, when you grow up seeing that kind of stuff, it also just, you know, it informs the way you think about the world. Yeah, and I've got more I want to talk to you about related to the to the plot itself and some things about the characters. But uh, this might be a good time, given the fact that we've talked about water scarcity for you to do a little reading from your book. This is a, a section of the book that uh, uh, talks about uh, sort of the view from the Phoenix area, which is, you know, sort of at the bottom bottom uh, of the water chain here yeah. when it comes to things. And uh, I thought it was a, an interesting read, uh, a section of the book, because it actually describes some of the scarcity in uh, really stark terms. So, can you set up who's in this scene and then uh, you can, if you would, read that for us? Sure. This is a section where uh, Maria Villarosa, who doesn't know much about water, is having having some water rights uh, sort of explained and having some of the infrastructure explained to her about how, um, how water works and why Phoenix exists and how it exists. How about setting up who is the he in this uh, scene too? Oh, let's see. This is this should be Rattan, actually, and he's a um, he's a water rights guy uh, who he basically he's he's a water guy who uh, helps this company uh, look for and drill for aquifer water in the um, in the Arizona area, um, which is sort of a scam. He's like, there's no water to be found, but we just pretend like there is, and we keep getting paid to go out and hunt for more water. So, but. Uh, um, yeah, so he's explaining to Maria um, how things work. And and honestly, this was sort of, you know, this is one of these opportunities where you're trying to explain to a, a larger audience also, you know, here's this weird corner of the world, like, check this out and let's take a look at it. So he opened a map of Arizona, then zoomed in on Phoenix. He pointed at a thin blue line that wrapped around the northern edge of the city and traced its wet, traced it west across the desert. In contrast to the lumps of ranged hills and mountains around Phoenix, the blue line was straight as a ruler. It bent a few times, but it lay on the land as if someone had sliced the desert with an exacto blade. When he zoomed in, Maria could see the pale yellow of the desert and black rocky hills. A few lonely saguaros casting shadows, and then they were down on top of an emerald river of water flowing along a concrete-lined canal. Rattan scrolled the map further west, following the straight-ruled artificial river until it reached a wide pool of blue, glittering with desert sunlight. Lake Havasu, it said. And feeding it, a squiggly blue line. Colorado River. 
The cap is Arizona's IV drip for Tan Explained. It pumps water up out of the Colorado River and brings it 300 miles across the desert to Phoenix. Almost everything else that Phoenix depends on for water is done for. Roosevelt Reservoir is about dried up. The Verde and Salt Rivers are practically seasonal. The aquifers around here are all pumped to hell. But Phoenix still has a pulse because of the cap. He drew back the map, following the distance of the canal again, the slender line crossing all that desert. His finger lingered over it. You see how tiny that line is, right? How far it's got to go? And it's coming out of a river that a lot of other people want to use, too. California pumps out of Lake Havasu, too. And Catherine Case up in Nevada doesn't like letting water down into Havasu at all because she needs it up in Lake Mead. And then you've got all the lunatics further upriver in Colorado and Wyoming and Utah who keep saying they aren't going to send any water down to the lower basin states at all. They like to say it's theirs, their mountains, their snowmelt. He tapped the cap's slender blue line again. That's a lot of people fighting over too little water, and that's a mighty vulnerable line. Someone bombed the cap once, almost knocked Phoenix off. He leaned back and grinned. And that's why they're hiring people like me. Phoenix needs backups. If someone comes after them again, he made a dismissive gesture. They're done for. But if I find a decent aquifer, Phoenix is golden. They can even grow again. Will you find something, Maria asked. Rattan laughed. Probably not. (laughs) But people will grab after whatever mirage they think will save them if they're thirsty enough. So I go out with my maps and my drilling crews, and I look busy, and I tell people where to punch holes in the desert, and Phoenix keeps hoping we'll come back with some mother load of aquifers so they can stop worrying about how they stand on the Colorado River, and they can stop looking over their shoulders at Vegas and California. If I find some new magical water source, they'll be saved. I guess it could happen. I've heard of miracles. Mary Perry sure believe. Jesus walked on water. So maybe he makes aquifers, too. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so, listeners, just so you know, Catherine Case, who was mentioned in this reading, uh, she's a corrupt business magnate who controls, in this story, the Nevada water supplies and the luxury arcology structures that shelter the rich. Uh, she's part of this syndicate that sabotages water boards of rival states. And in fact, you know, like any good thriller, um, Paolo, you open this story with sort of a helicopter rush toward a small town and, and Angel Velasquez, who's, you know, the main character here, uh, main protagonist, an evil protagonist, <laughs> you know, he's, he's dropping in there and he's got this, uh, nickname, the water knife, which also the title of your book. Um, you know, that's a pretty, uh, stark scene. You got this, uh, person who's running sort of the water supply of the Colorado river, cutting people out with brute force. Yeah. Um, you know, it makes for a great thriller, clearly. Um, but, you know, when water becomes scarce, um, who's to say, right? I mean, so the way that this book is sort of designed is it definitely goes on certain sort of assumptions about the way human beings uh, are deciding to behave. Um, it's not it's not predictive necessarily, but it, 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 it sort of goes on the assumption that people are both stupid, greedy, and think in zero-sum t- terms. Um, and so this is the kind of future you get if people are stupid, greedy, and think in zero times some terms. Oh, and also don't plan for the future. Um, and so uh, what you've got at this point is this, this zero-sum idea that like Las Vegas needs its water. 
you know, Havasu City wants some too, and Vegas doesn't want to let them have it. And so the simplest thing is to do is to blow up Havasu City's water treatment plant and problem solved. They can't pump water. Vegas gets to keep their water. Done deal. Um, this is going on. In this, this is built on a set of other sort of political assumptions about the United States that have to do with power becoming more and more devolved to the states, um, the federal government becoming more and more anemic and starved and and dysfunctional um, because of, you know, you know, existing and, and ongoing policies by political parties. Um, and so, you know, by this time, like states really are thinking and cities are thinking in terms of like not of themselves as Americans anymore, but more as, you know, citizens of Nevada or citizens of Arizona or California or whatever. Um, and because of that, then they start looking at one another as as disposable. Um, and so that's kind of this backdrop of, of political values that then informs this other zero sum attitude towards water and, and water solutions. Um, oh. It's certainly going to make me think uh, twice again when I go to Phoenix to play golf and I see all those water sprinklers right. you know, taking care of all, it's all, that surreal. Green, <laughs> all that green grass out there. Yeah, uh, a little bit for our listeners about the about the story itself. It's in the near future. The Colorado River is sort of dwindled to a trickle. You've got this detective assassin spy who's Angel Velasquez, right. and water knife. He's cutting water, you know, right. out, out of people's yeah, yeah, yeah. way. Um, sort of the 007 of water, I guess, yeah, is kind of the yeah. way that I was thinking of him. Yeah. But uh, I, I thought it was <laughs> it was fun that, uh, you know, a little bit of a political, uh, I don't know, satire here. But uh, you got Maria Villarosa, who's a refugee from not Mexico, right. but the state of Texas, you know. Yep. And they're keeping people out from the state of Texas from coming in right. to Phoenix. So payback is a bitch, I guess. But right. Uh, you know, so we got so <laughs> very much so. Yeah, so a little bit uh, here about um, the plot here because you've got three characters and one of them is Lucy Monroe, and it kind of gets back to my question earlier. Mm -hmm. that I was going to get to this other theme we talked about. North Carolina Humanities Council is journalism and the role that it can play. Uh, you're you are a journalist. Uh, obviously, you work this character into the story. You've got some background there. Um, you you deal with a couple of things here. How journalists cope in these environments. Um, and also, you know, will they be believed, you know, uh, with what they're telling? Uh, I'd like you to talk about that a little bit because with, you know, we, we've been through a lot in this country, um, with people not believing journalists and, mm -hmm. you know, when the time comes and somebody's telling me there's a water shortage, uh, and they're a journalist, I want to be able to believe them. What's, what are we going to do about that, Pella? Uh, so yeah, we, we live in a, a disinformation ecosystem these days. Um, so, um, yeah, Lucy is sort of, uh, she's, she's interesting to me because, um, she, first of all, she allows me to, uh, to tell a story where she gets to sort of give you an overview of what's happening in Phoenix as so she's watching Phoenix fall apart from a lack of planning. It gives the reader a chance to also see from a variety of perspectives, what's going on and to understand sort of the larger sort of framework of, of Phoenix falling apart, even as Lucy herself tries to survive and get stories out and stuff like that. Um, I've been noticing years ago, like because I was online editor, I was already noticing a trend where, um, 
news was moving towards clickbait. Um, and especially as, as we shifted more and more of our audiences online, and that became uh, measurable. You could tell which stories performed and which stories didn't. Um, what you saw was a sort of a maximization of both telling the kinds of stories that an audience wants to hear, um, but also telling them in the punchiest possible way. Um, and so what you end up with is pandering. Um, and that's what you have when you have like, you know, Tucker Carlson or somebody like that. They're, they're professional panderers and they're paid a lot of money to do it. Tucker Carlson gets paid $10 million a year to make people, um, you know, angry. Uh, yeah. Um, and so what you saw though, is like, because, um, in, in, especially in print media, um, but you know, as an on, on online media, you see the performance of every single story. Does this get clicks? Is this generating ad revenue? And, you know, if, if your motivation is profit, if your, if your news motivation is profit, that leads towards telling the, the most punchy, uh, exciting, stimulating, enraging stories possible, um, and doing that in the most stimulating way possible. Um, and the problem with that is that like a lot of the most important stories that we face are complex, difficult to understand in, in a single, you know, scoop serving, um, and uh, they need a lot of context and they need a lot of thought and they take a lot of words. Um, you, you can't understand even the impact of climate change in one single town or one single region without expending paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs mm. to try to explain all of the things that are sort of coming together to make this a problem in this particular spot. And then you move that to another spot. You talk about North Carolina, or you talk about Florida, or you talk about the Northeast or Canada or whatever, and you're going to have a different set. And so like when you're talking about these big global impact stories, and and and, and this is the case for most of our situations as human beings right now. We are 7 billion, 8 billion people on the planet or whatever. Um, we generate complex storylines. Um, you know, our resource inputs come from around the globe. Our, you know, trash goes to other places around the globe. We are, we are a global species with globally complex problems that we're generating. And then, you know, at the same time as our news media is becoming more and more simplified and, and sort of, I would say, animalistic, really. Um, and so at the very time that we need to be wisest, most most thoughtful, most forward-looking, we're becoming, our news media is becoming more visceral, more uh, uh, hyper-stimulating, and more sort of quick and punchy and and lacking in context. Um, yeah, so, well, you yeah. know. You know, they say there's that old saying, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, but I don't know about science fiction. Sometimes in dystopian fiction, I think the fiction may be just as strange as the truth. And, uh, right. you know, in this uh, case, uh, I, I saw a quote in here that I pulled out. People only really live when they're about to die. Mm. Before then, it's all a waste. You don't appreciate how good it is until you're really in the shit. That was what <laughs> came out. And that's essentially how we live our lives when it comes to things like climate change sometimes, you know, until it actually knocks us in the, in the side of the head until the spigot's not working, until right. the well's not pumping, you know, right. it's not that urgent, you know, an issue. So, uh, yeah. So, so it's, it's nice that you can put it in a book like this. That's, uh, you know, entertaining. It's got a plot. You can follow the characters, you can deal with them. But when that journalism stuff was going on in this book and you talked about clickbait, I mean, the, the kind of things they were latching onto, were the deaths and the pictures of the gruesome deaths. And those right. were the things that were getting all the 
headlines and and not the necessarily the search you know for the water itself right and and we saw this all the time when we were when I was working for high country news the the most important stories that we were writing were ones that didn't necessarily get the response that writing a little funny tidbit did um, yeah. um, and oftentimes like honestly the stories that we need to hear are not the stories we want to hear um, you know we used to have readers all the time uh, stop subscribing because they were just too depressed by the news that we were reporting. Mm. Yeah. Um, and they were like, I can't take it. And you're like, I understand that that's, you know, emotionally, you want to protect yourself from these things. Um, but, uh, you know, if we're going to solve problems, we actually have to look at these. Um, yeah, and so there's a, there's a, again, that's that problem of pandering. Do you make your audience feel comfortable and thereby keep their subscriptions and keep your advertising revenue up? Or do you give them truth or what they need to hear that will make them feel uncomfortable and and yet is is incredibly necessary for them to be effective citizens well it's definitely a book that'll make you feel uncomfortable but it's also a book that'll take you on a on a thrilling ride and i've got a few questions for your writing life before we finish this uh interview and listeners i want to let you know that we're going to jump over after this uh, uh paolo and r and we're going to do a little uh patreon episode uh on uh, writing dystopian fiction and, and use this uh, book as a, as a framework for that. And uh, you can join, you can see us there at uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte readers podcast, all one word. But Paolo, we do this on the show sometimes uh, ask a few writing life questions and for you, the kind of work that you write. Um, I'm just curious about this. Do you set out to learn something of value about the world when you're writing a novel to impart something of value or, or to impart something of value with what you're writing, or a little bit of both. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I actually, I have this. So, so first of all, like at, at, at base, one of the things that my 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 main goal is that I want to entertain. Um, yeah. I want people to enjoy reading a story because it's interesting, engaging. You know, it takes them all the way through, um, and that's partly because those are the stories that I grew up reading and enjoying when I was a kid, um, and. Uh, I've, I've always hated the idea that that uh, reading should be sort of a, I don't know, eat your oatmeal sort of experience. Um, so if it's not fun, thrilling, exciting, engaging, you know, you've already failed as an author. And so that's kind of like the starting point. And that's the kind of the puzzle that I'm actually trying to solve is how do I say something that's meaningful or important? Um, in a way that's engaging and how, you know, where's the the crossing point, the win-win that you can pull that off sort of. Um, but the story ideas that I come for, why, why I choose a certain story oftentimes has to do most with, I'm looking for a trend line around me. I'm trying to, I'm always watching the world. I'm sort of looking at trends and I'm looking at dynamics and stuff. And I, and when I see a detail and it's, and it's never, it's, it's never clear what it's going to be, but there'll be a detail that I'll notice. And, and for whatever reason, it sort of goes off in my head. It's like a little explosion. It's like, Oh, that's important. Oh, I think this is actually, uh, we need to think about this. I need to think about this. This is strange. Um, you know, so, you know, an example of that is that sort of like seeing um, Las Vegas had built you know, they had intake number one at one point into, into Lake Mead, and then the lake water went below that. And so then they had to drill another one in lower down. And so they could pump out of Lake Mead and then Lake Mead got lower again and they had to drill. They, they now got intake number three. It was like this, you know, billion dollar mega project or whatever. They basically drilled into the bottom of the lake. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you watch that and then you're like, this is 
a pattern. Like this is telling us something. And each stage is like, they don't quite tell the big story. They only tell the little, like, what's the big story here? There's something going on. And so I'll latch onto something like that. And then I start, you know, and then a long time, it takes a long time for me to find either the access point or what I want to say or how I want to talk about it um, in a way that's meaningful. Um, because like the, there's this little trigger of like, huh, this seems relevant. Um, you know, it's the same thing with like seeing that like, you know, you know, Tucker Carlson gets paid $10 million a year or Rush Limbaugh gets paid $50 million a year um, to make Americans angry at each other. Um, you know, you see that and that's like, that's a trend. That's interesting. That's a strange incentive. Where does that go? Like, this is actually important. I think if our entertainment systems are built around this, uh, where does this go? Like, I don't think I know. can take that book. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I've written, I wrote a short story called American Goldmine about that, actually, specifically. A lot of times I'll write short stories to yeah. take my first attack on something yeah. um, like these ideas so that I can start spinning them out. And, uh, I wrote American Goldmine specifically because of that. I was like, this is interesting. There's a profit motivation to make Americans mad. Like, okay. Like, um, another form of clickbait, I guess. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so, um, but that's what I'm, you know, there's that moment. And this reason why I actually haven't, I've had a hard time writing lately about a lot of different things because I have the sense that everybody is right now is sort of, you know, hyper aware of trends, you know, hyper aware of dynamics and stuff like that. And if I don't feel like I have anything to add to that particular conversation, I don't, um, you know, and that was one of the reasons why I didn't write about climate change at one point was because I was like, you know, I think this is actually going to get handled. I think, you know, smart people are involved in stuff like that. And, uh, and then there was a moment where I was like, Ooh, no, actually, we are not actually engaged with this yet. And I do want to dive in here. Well, I took a little more lighthearted approach to it. I wrote a trilogy of books about lawyers who save Christmas. And in the third book, uh, there, there's, some, there's some things that are happening. And one of the things that's happening is that the North Pole's melting and there's a conspiracy that relates to uh, mineral drilling in the uh, Arctic. Uh, there's nice. The <laughs> nice. I like it. So, but it's kind of in the vein of my cousin Vinny meets Miracle on 34th Street, though. So it's a little bit yeah. different different take there. Yes, I like it. Uh, one last question. We're going to jump over to Patreon here. But uh, I ask authors who are experienced like yourself, uh, what you would tell your younger writing self, uh, that had you known it, uh, might've helped you, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, you know, boy, every, every writer sort of has this strange journey, um, where, you know, they sort of are earning their bones. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'd probably tell myself actually looking back is, um, I mean, there were two things going on. Like, I remember when I turned 30, I'd already been writing for like five or six years. And I, when I turned 30, I remember I broke down and cried because I'd written multiple books that hadn't sold. Nobody had bought them. Nobody wanted them. Um, I was working on a new book and it was going in. Eventually, it also failed. And then I wrote another book after that, like that also failed. So like I wrote four novels that were completely rejected before I had any breakthroughs. So, you know, there's one thing that you sort of want to reach back and sort of pat yourself on the head and say, they're there. It's okay. You know, eventually, <laughs> yeah. you'll sort yeah. this out. Um, this is going somewhere. You're not insane, even though right. everybody around you thinks you're a loser, like you're not insane. <laughs> um, so there's that, but there's something else actually more important. I feel like that I wish I had, I, that I still like have to tell myself and has become much clearer as I've gone through my career. And that's, um, if I could go back and tell myself, don't worry about the outcomes, focus on the writing, focus on enjoying the writing, 
focus on the the things that you can control. You can control that you write and you can control that you enjoy what you're writing, that the act of writing itself should be an exploration and a pleasure and a joy. Um, don't make it a misery, make it a joy um, because that's something that's within your zone of control regardless. And to center yourself well in that space, whether, whether you're successful or whether you're not successful, um, it means that you're in a much more resilient spot. Um, and that would be the thing that like, really like, you know, it's, it's only become more and more clear over the years that that's, that's where you want to be as an artist is you want to be centered in that space of like, Oh, this is interesting for me. I'm engaged. I'm enjoying this. That's where I'm going to focus, not on whether or not somebody likes me or whatever. It's such great advice. And I've heard it so many times. I've interviewed more than 200 authors now in a couple of years here. And, and I asked that question and there's a theme there. People figure it out. They get there. They're overnight successes, but it takes them six to t- 10 years to get there. Oh yeah. And oh, uh, yeah. so, so, okay. Well, look, uh, listeners, we're going to, we're going to sign off here. Um, head over to uh, Patreon to talk, uh, writing dystopian thrillers. Uh, Paolo, I want to thank you so much for being a part of Charlotte Ridge podcast. Thank you. This was fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.